Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning is from Mark 3, 13 through 21, and then 31 through 35. And you'll find this passage on page 838 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, whom he gave gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Thank you, Becky. As I mentioned earlier, our sermon today is about life groups, Uh, life groups or small groups or community groups, whatever you're used to calling them. But I wanted to start by getting something straight. Uh, Life groups are not a biblical mandate, all right? It's not something, you're not going to read in the Bible, thou shalt haveth many groupeths that giveth life. If you're going to misquote scripture, pro tip, always go with the King James English. It sounds way more official. Um, Listen. Uh, Life groups is not like a varsity church move where the churches that really know what they're doing, they do these things because it's the best thing to do. Um, If you're in a life group, God doesn't love you more. Uh, Really, we need to be free from that kind of thinking if we're going to talk honestly about life groups at Grace Presbyterian Church this morning. Um, The reality is, is that life group, life group is a method. It's a method of doing church. It's one method of many. Uh, It's a method that we believe from the very inception of grace. We believe it works well for our structure and our personality. Um, The way our church relates to another life groups fits very well with what we do here. We we believe it's a a method we're going to continue to be committed to because we see the results that we want to see. We see what we think life group can be good for. Um, It's a method that we believe benefits the mission of our church uh, and discipling people in our church. And so this passage is gonna give insight uh, as to Jesus' intention for the church proper, and we're gonna tie that application-wise as to how we see life groups serving that purpose in our congregation. And so I wanted to make that qualifier before we started. Allow me to pray, and we'll look at the passage of Scripture. Father in heaven, thank you For life groups, thank you for Grace Presbyterian Church. Thank you for the church universal. Thank you for all those thousands of years ago when you grabbed a group of men and you brought them up on a mountain 
and you gave them a charge to be with you and then to be sent out. We would not be here if it weren't for that moment. And so I pray, Lord, that today our hearts and our minds would be open to how you define your church and how we might be a part of this gathering of believers in a more thorough way. We love you, God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this passage uh, starts with a simple truth. Um, so we're going to look at in each of these is what Jesus has done here with the disciples, how that has translated to the, the church universal, the worldwide church, and then how it applies to us as an individual church. But here we have this simple truth. As a reformed Presbyterian church, we have in verse 13, God choosing his people. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. God ordains the makeup of his disciples. God ordains the makeup of his church. God ordains the makeup of this church. And so our church, the first truth we're starting with this morning is that our church, the people that are here, the people that are involved, this, this assembly of God's people is ordained by God. It's ordained by God. So, so the disciples here, they were, they were who they were, disciples and apostles, because of Christ's divine choice. He chose them. The church universal will include everyone that God has chosen. And, and so if you take that truth and you apply it to the whole church and God's disciples, then our church is what, is what it is because of God's design. It's God's design. Now, spoiler alert, this is probably the next point if you listen carefully, but we're called to a specific purpose. But what a relief, what a relief regarding church growth, knowing that God brings who he's going to bring. What a relief. God brings who he's going to bring. And so we start this passage with the affirming that God is in control of who is a part of his body. And so from there, we can align our expectations of who should be in and what we're gathered to do. And so Jesus gathers the disciples together and he tells them, or the, the author tells us what the purpose was. Look at verses 14 and 15. So he gathered whom he desired, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might, be, might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the disciples, we'll start there. The disciples, what, was the, the, what were these 12 men chosen for? Chosen what was the purpose. They were chosen to, first of all, be with him, follow him around, listen to his teachings, eat with him, pray with him, work with him. Why? That he might send them out. In fact, that word apostles means a herald or a messenger, or the, the word preach means to, to herald a message. And later we see Jesus confirming this by he giving, him giving the disciples the great commission, go and make disciples. Go with what? The message that he gave them, the things he represented. If we expand this to the church universal, the, the worldwide church, every church, every church in this world has the same mission. Whether they know it or not, that mission is the Great Commission. Every church, every church in every form or fashion, it's designed to be with God, to be with Jesus, and send out the message. Any church that thinks it exists for any other purpose, including ours, if we think that, we're mistaken. They're mistaken. 
And so what isn't the church? Here we see Jesus at the very beginning of forming his church through the disciples. We can see already what the church is not. The church is not a place to be comfortable with people just like us. That's not what the church is. The church is actually not even a place where we go to escape the world. It's not what it is. It's not necessarily a shelter. The church isn't a place to expect your personal preferences to be played out. I would say this, the church is not a place at all. What is the church? The church is a group of people gathered to worship and to work to bring worship where it is not. That's what the church is. To be with him and then be sent out. That's the church. So getting more specific, what's our church? Our church mission is this. Listen for the great commission in this. Here's our mission statement. Gathering broken people together to live out the whole gospel. That's what we have said we are here to do. We're gathering people in from where? All the broken places of this world where we come from. That's where we're gathering people in, to this place. To do what? Live out the whole gospel, not partial or half, not just the information side or the preaching side, but the sharing side as well. And so what are we? We are a church gathered together and eventually to be sent out. Either we're sent out daily, I pray that is true, or sometimes it's long-term, short-term, or forever. We send out the word. And so God has gathered people on purpose at church, and he's gathered us for a purpose. Verses 16 through 19 start showing us just what kind of people God has gathered into his disciples, uh, and he has gathered in his disciples a very diverse group. Look at verses 16 through 19. He appointed the 12. We'll talk more specifically about these guys in just a moment. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And Becky, you're so brave to even try to read that word. I usually just skip it and say, whom he named the sons of thunder. Um, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's run through this real quick. Simon, if you know your New Testament, who is Simon? Simon is stubborn, know-it-all, full of pride. That's who, that's who Simon was, Peter. Full of pride and insecurity. That's probably where his pride came from. James and John, likely loud and obnoxious. We know for sure they were arrogant. Their mother's the one that came to Jesus and said, would you please put my sons at your right and left? That's not the, the request of a humble person. Andrew, the brother of Peter, before he knew Jesus was a follower of John the Baptist. So you have this guy who's a faithful Jew looking for the Messiah, actively looking. And then he finds Jesus. Philip, we don't know much. I heard, learned this week that his name means fond of horses. Is Philip, Philip here? Philip Cease? Can we confirm? Are you fond of horses? No, okay. Um, don't know much about Philip, okay? Bartholomew, again, not much known. Matthew, this is huge. A tax collector. In other words, a traitor. A traitor. He worked for the Romans to tax his fellow Israelites. Not a popular guy. Thomas, <clears throat> his name means twin. Famous for what? Being a doubter. He said, I need to put my hands inside the wounds of Christ before I'll believe. 
Thaddeus, again, little known, likely a missionary to Syria after Jesus ascended. This next one's interesting, Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a militant anti-Roman group of people. And if you've watched the show The Chosen, you know that, that, that Simon knew karate. Um, that's only going to be funny for some of you. Okay. Um, anyway, there's this show The Chosen, and they show him like learning karate. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Anyway, um, they probably didn't know karate. It wasn't around in Israel back then. Um, but he, they wanted to dethrone Rome by violence. So think about the interaction between Simon and Matthew, the tax collector. Think about this. And then, of course, the most interesting of all, Jesus chose Judas. He chose Judas, who, of course, betrayed him. So not a true follower at all. This is the crew that Jesus chose. They didn't sign up. They didn't have a tryout. Jesus chose them. As you apply this same idea to the church universal, the church worldwide historical church, my goodness, what varied backgrounds, what varied experiences. Think of all the places in the world and how different those churches are. That's an exciting experience. One of the reasons you might want to go to Japan is to see what it's like to worship Jesus on the other side of the planet in a place where no one else worships Jesus. And so God as we look at, at history, certainly, and we look at the world now, he does not strunk, struggle with attracting a diverse crowd to his name. That's his specialty. You can read about the future of Christ's church in Revelation 7. Listen to this. Listen to the diversity that God draws in. After I looked, this is, of course, John, one of the sons of thunder, writing this. After I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of different faces and experiences all gathered for what? One purpose, worshiping God. And so we have to be aware that through time, in history, in the world, God uses all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And God does not skimp on diversity. And so let's look at this in regard to grace. This is the crew that God chose to be here. We're it. <laughs> We're the crew for Grace Presbyterian Church. And so we don't have to wring our hands or fret on who else needs to be here. We are here and God has us here for a mission. And so I think we ought to be encouraged. Think about the diversity that God has expressed in our body. Think about all the different jobs represented. We have lawyers, we have more lawyers. We have a few more lawyers after that, right? <laughs> Um, we have mechanics and doctors and CEOs and military personnel. We have self-employed. We have artists and musicians. We have mathematicians. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. We all come from different places, with different personalities. And one thing I love about our church, and this is a benefit, is that we are a spiritually diverse church. There are people from every level of spiritual maturity in this place, and we all have something to learn from one another. There's always room to disciple one another. 
And so we see nothing really surprising so far. We see God's choice in bringing his people together. We see him putting them on mission. We see him gathering together a a diverse group of people. But it's this next portion of scripture that might be a little more surprising. Um, And so we have here uh, that in verses 20 and 21, then 31 through 35, God giving or Jesus giving a, a new collective identity to his followers, a new collective identity to his followers. First of all, let's just take a look at what's happening in the story. And you can see this in verses 20 and 21. It's fascinating to me. Um, reading through Mark this last summer, uh, I'd never noticed this portion of this passage before. And so let's take a look. First, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And if you look at who this includes, look at verse 31 really quick. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called to him. So here's the surprising piece to me, and maybe it's surprising to you. We tend to think that Mary's on board with what Jesus is doing from the very beginning. After all, she knows she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know that an angel came and said, your son's going to be savior of all. But what is she saying here with his brothers? He's crazy. Meaning Mary had her own expectations of what Jesus' salvation would look like. Mary knew he was savior, but she thought maybe he would do it a different way. And so I think it's important for us to understand that if Mary is fallible in this way, then so are we. Our expectations of what Christ is and how he does things need to be kept in check. But what's happening? They they are trying to call Jesus out and gain control over him. That's what verses 31 and 32 show us. So this, this word, seize him. It tells us this, but also this idea of of sending out and calling and they're seeking him. These are all words of them trying to control Jesus. So his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So again, our Western eyes miss a little bit here. Generally, if someone's an important person, where is their family? They're inside the house eating with him. That's where the family would be. But in this case, who's with Jesus, his followers, and who's on the outside, his family. They're trying to use that family connection to control Jesus, to change his pattern, to change his trajectory. And Jesus' response in 33 through 35 is interesting. Let's read it, and then we'll talk about what it means. And he answered them. So they said, your your mom and your brothers are looking for you. They want you to go out and see them. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus Jesus is not slighting family ties. That's not what's happening. He's not saying, well, family doesn't matter anymore. Jesus is making a clear statement about who he is and what salvation in him means. No other qualification is necessary. Here's what Jesus is saying. No other qualification is necessary other than being my follower. There's no other relationship that can can force me to, to do what you want me to do. I am Jesus and only those who follow me are a part of my divine family. Divine family. And so what's the message here? There is no closeness closer than closeness with Christ. You say closeness a few more times. There is no closeness closer than closeness with Christ. 
There's no closeness closer than that. One author said it this way, as I was studying this week, without spite, Jesus alerts his natural family that blood relationship cannot claim privilege. At the same time, the statement indicates that those who sit around him and do God's will are his family. There are only two kinds of people, those who sit on the inside at Jesus' feet and those who stand on the outside with false assumptions. The closeness of the children of God, the closeness between brothers and sisters in Christ whether we recognize it or not, is closer than blood closeness. In fact, it's the earthly family that reflects the, the, the reality of the divine family, not the other way around. And so, as we think about this from the, the church universal, the worldwide historical church, when we travel, if you travel to other foreign countries, you may not even speak the language, but when you sit and worship, you know something. These are my brothers and sisters, and I belong here. It happens. We belong in a divine, eternal family. And it's full of people that don't look like us, don't think like us. This is one reason we ought to regularly pray and empathize with our brothers and sisters around the world. But thinking about our church, bringing it closer to home, I think I want to say this first, and then we'll get into life groups, applying it this way. But listen, Earthly families are not void of issues. My family's got issues. I've got issues. Your family, I think, probably has issues. Some families don't like to talk about it, <laughs> but we all, all of our families have issues. And so, in the divine family, think about it. There's, there's the tax collector and the zealot. There are those who are genuine followers and Judas. In our church, it's no different. We can expect, we know that hurt happens in the church. I know it because I see it. <laughs> I see it all. The closer you are to someone, the more sin hurts. And so when you're in the divine family, the, the family that God has orchestrated for us in his church and hurt happens there, it can very much hurt. Now, dealing with that is another sermon for another day, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned it so you know that there's reality in this. But let's talk about life groups. At this church, life groups is the way that we can experience, a way we can experience that closeness. If, the, if there is no closeness closer than closeness with Christ, and there is no closeness closer than the closeness with our brothers and sisters as we sit with Christ, life group is the way at grace you can participate in that closeness on a regular basis. In that closeness. Life group is not a Bible study. Life group is not a supper club. Life group is not any of those things. What is life group? And, and I want you to imagine, use your imagination, think about what it was like for Jesus to crowd into this house, not even room to eat. Life group is the family of Christ cramming together and enjoying the presence of Christ together. That's what it is. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you're with this group and it may seem like there's someone on the outside, but really, what is it? You're praying together. You're speaking to Jesus. You're listening to Jesus together. You're taking care of one another's needs. So life group is the experience of that closeness 
together as we are close with Christ. Life groups here at Grace are a core part of the kind of church we're called to be. It just is what it is. It's what we're called to be. We're called to be a, a family of God here. And so sometimes life group can be that safe haven of rest that you need. Sometimes a life group, and it's painful, but sometimes life group is the place you send out from. And that hurts. Why? Because you're close with those people. But always, always life group is a gathering of family with our friend and our savior, Jesus Christ. That's what life group is. It's a family gathering. And as leaders and as your pastor, I can genuinely say I really desire everyone who's here to be a part of that experience. There is an act of togetherness that we do here that is mandated by scripture. Life group is not that, but the Lord's Supper. It's an act of togetherness. It's a family affair. Uh, Togetherness as a church has always been a part of what we believe God has called us here to be. We want people to feel like they belong here, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are. We want to go out and and be relational with people who do not know Jesus and bring them in, letting them know that they they are welcome here because we're broken too. And so togetherness is such an important part. It's such an important part that back in the early days of the church plant before I even arrived, it was decided that we do the Lord's Supper as often as we could. And so we, we make an attempt to do it every week. And so what are we doing? As we come forward as we take a piece of bread, as we take a cup of wine or juice, and as we do this together, this in a sense is us cramming into the house to receive and be near our Lord and Savior and our friend, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I encourage you to let your imagination run a little bit. Imagine what it would have been like to be there in that house with Jesus in the flesh, teaching, feeding, talking, What kind of soul healing would take place in a context like that? What benefit would there have been of being together with Jesus? And so if you imagine how sweet that must have been, I remind us all that Jesus himself told us that he was sending something better than all that in the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be crammed into a house near a physical person. We have the Holy Spirit in us who comforts us, walks with us, is the very presence of Jesus near his followers. And so this morning as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we do so in the very presence of our friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise his name. Praise his name. So this morning, if you know that you are a sinner and the only reason that you are a child of God is because you've been adopted, adopted by God, You've not done anything to deserve that. You know that Jesus is your only hope. You've made that profession. You've been baptized. You're invited to come and eat. Cram around the table, if you will. If you happen to be in this story, one of those who are on the outside, also on the outside of the house at this point, were the Pharisees accusing Christ of things. And so... If you do not believe in Jesus Christ and what he teaches, 
what he offers. If you are maybe, in a sense, like a family member of Jesus, thinking that you can go some other way to gain access to Jesus, the Bible makes it clear that it's not wise uh, to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so if that is you, if you do not believe in Jesus, if there's something in your life that you refuse to hand over to him, uh, the Bible makes it clear, do not come forward and eat this morning. But as always, I encourage you to not leave it at that. Come talk to me, come talk to one of our elders. Uh, we'd love to, to have that conversation with you and, and, and dig through where you're at on those issues. For just a moment, let's pray quietly. Uh, let's ask the Lord to prepare us for this time. I'll gather us together in just a moment with a prayer of blessing. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we thank you for your eternal unity. We thank you for your divine choice, your divine gathering. We thank you that you are sufficient to the task of saving your people. We thank you that you have saved all that you have saved and all that you will save in your universal church. And we also thank you, Lord, for those who are here in this place, whom you've ordained to be here. We're the crew you've chosen for Grace Presbyterian Church. What a blessing to be a part of it, a part of this family. I pray this morning that as we come and eat, we would feel the healing presence of Jesus Christ. We would forgive the hurts we have felt. We would ask for forgiveness for the hurts that we have given. I pray that you would unite even closer this eternal family and earthly form. Grace Presbyterian Church. I pray that you would fill our life groups with people this year that need that divine closeness, that need a place where they can be safe and heard and prayed for and cared for. And I pray that our groups would remain healthy, that we would not get distracted by what, they, what our life groups are not, but we would major on the fact that we are cramming together as a family near our leader, our our friend, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Cause that time to disciple us in our hearts. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Bless this bread, bless this juice and wine, bless it to our spiritual health. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.